Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Today on Something You Should Know, what's the difference between a collectible, an antique, and something that is vintage? Then, how do you detect and defend yourself from people who fling BS at you? We know this, that clarification is a major antidote to BS. So you'll already be exposing yourself to less BS by just acting maybe a bit dumb, a little bit confused, and say, well, I hear you saying X. Is what you are saying X? Also, a test to determine how many true close friends you really have and a simple technique that will diffuse almost any argument and it always works better than getting angry. Angry emotions are contagious. Your positive emotions are also contagious. And so the other person feels that coming at them and that automatically influences them to be calm. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work, but just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, well, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Use Indeed. In the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on something you should know. Indeed.com something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. Something you should know. Fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hey, welcome to Something You Should Know. Maybe it's because of eBay and people selling their old stuff, but you hear a lot of times people talk about antiques or collectibles or vintage. What do those terms mean? Well, what constitutes an antique has been debated for some time now. Some say that an antique is an object of considerable age that is valued for its aesthetic or historical significance. In the antique trade, the term refers to objects that are more than 100 years old. Some dealers are attempting to lower the standard of an antique, believing that an item over 50 years old should be considered an antique. But traditional antique dealers say the 50-year definition lowers the standard to a point that dealers can sell collectibles and call them an antique. Which takes us to collectibles. A collectible, that's a term that describes valuable objects less than 100 years old, often distinguished from antiques, which are over 100 years old. Then we have the word vintage, which originally applied to the age of a bottle of wine. The term was hijacked and is now used to describe an item that has cycled back into fashion or is less than 25 years old. However, it should be known that the label antique or vintage or collectible or retro, none of that really has any effect on the value of the item. The value of an item is determined more by whether there is demand for it. There are very rare antiques which are sold for much less than a newer collectible. 
because there's no demand for the rare antique and a high demand for the collectible. And that is something you should know. We don't swear or use profanity on this podcast, mostly because it's just not necessary. Also, that way we don't have to put that little explicit E in our description. But the fact that we have that policy here at Something You Should Know requires a preface to this next segment, because my first guest today is here to discuss BS. And the word that BS stands for is in the title of a book he wrote. We're going to talk about BS, but we're not going to say the word. It is an important topic, though, because, as you likely well know, the world and the people in it are often full of BS. We've all likely flung some of it around ourselves. And BS can get us in trouble and lead us astray in life, according to John Petrocelli. He is a professor of psychology at Wake Forest University, and his research examines the causes and consequences of BS. He's author of a book called The Life-Saving Science of Detecting BS. Hi, John. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I guess we need to define what BS is. What What is it exactly and what isn't it exactly? Absolutely. I mean, BS, as I've defined it, is consistent with Harry Frankfurt's definition. He's the philosopher that, that first defined BS in this way. And and he defined it as a communicative substance that results from communicating something with little to no regard or concern for truth, genuine evidence, or established knowledge. So this, this may come out as, as exaggerating one's own knowledge or competence or skills in a particular domain, or it may uh, be useful to, to impress others, to fit in. Uh, to influence or to persuade others, um, such as um, when one is trying to confuse or hide simply the fact that one does not know what they're talking about. Um, and so this is, this is very different, actually, from lying. It may sound like lying, but it's, it's different in the sense that the, that the liar is often concerned about the truth so far as to be successful in detracting us from the truth. But the BSer really doesn't care. So what the BSer says in many cases may actually be correct. It may actually be true what, what they're saying, but but even they would not know that because they're not paying any attention to truth, established knowledge, or or evidence. So if somebody's trying to sell you something, somebody's trying to sell you a car and they say, you know, knowing full well that this car does not get 40 miles to the gallon, but I'm going to say that anyway because it sounds good. That's not BS. That's a lie. Exactly. That's right. Because they, in that case, they know the truth, um, but they're telling you something that they know not to be true. And then also the, the liar, it's important to know that the liar doesn't actually believe what it is that they're saying. Right, but but the BSer oftentimes does believe what it is they're saying. It's not it's not necessary that they believe, but in a lot of cases, what you find is that BSers actually do believe what it is that they're spewing. Don't you suppose we all BS once in a while? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> that's by definition, it is such an easy behavior to engage in. So it's I mean it's almost like breathing because the opposite of BSing is evidence-based reasoning and evidence-based communication. And that takes time and effort. And in most cases, people are not willing to, to put forth that time and effort to have a well-informed opinion about everything. And this is one of the reasons why BS is so pervasive and ubiquitous in society, because people often feel as though that they need to have an opinion or they're obligated to have an opinion about everything. And it's just, it's impossible to have an informed opinion about everything. And so people, um, people often say, you often hear the expression, you know, that they have a BS detector, that they can spot it a mile away. I can tell when this guy's given me the business here. And, and are some people really good at detecting it or not? Well, Mike, you are hitting on an issue of great interest and concern to us. 
what our data suggests right now is that people have opinions about their abilities to do to do just that, to detect BS. But the early data suggests that the most overconfident or the people who feel that they are most competent in detecting BS, oftentimes they are the least likely to, to successfully detect BS. So the big problem is, is that almost everyone feels as though they're not susceptible to the unwanted effects of BS because they can detect it and it, it's really harmless to begin with. Um, and they, people cannot be more wrong in that. Um, and we know, do know that there are so there's sort of a continuum of harm. Well, people may vary in terms of their ability to detect it. And I imagine that also is dependent on how good the BSer doing the BSing is it that some people are easier to detect than others. Yeah. What we find though in our research is there's actually more variance in the former. So there is more variance in the likelihood of asking critical thinking questions when you can communicate directly with the potential BSer. So, so if you don't ask questions, if you don't ask your, you know, who, how, you know, what, what agenda do they have? What are they trying to sell me kinds of questions? You will oftentimes be exposed to BS and it may have a longer lasting effect than you actually realize. So, so there's more variation in, in that than there is this um, charismatic kind of stereotypical vision of a, the BS artist that we usually think of. Um, those, are, those are pretty rare, but the, the real reason why people fail at detecting BS is that they fail to engage in evidence-based reasoning, basic critical thinking skills, and a, a healthy attitude of skepticism. It also seems that part of the reason BSers get away with it, 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 it seems like we have kind of a predisposition to want to believe people. So it's, you know, in, in the absence of evidence that it is BS, we tend to, to believe what people tell us. Why would they tell us otherwise? Absolutely, yes. I've argued that perhaps the most potent form of BS is that coming from our interpersonal relationships our family, our friends, our colleagues, our neighbors, people who we actually trust and care about, they can have a bigger impact on what it is that we believe, which is the foundation of, of decision-making, is, is what we believe to be true. And so since you study this, I mean, it, it's interesting to hear you use the phrase, you know, the data on BS, because who would think that you would actually study yeah. this, but, <laughs> but you study it. So why? What, and what have you found in studying it? And what are you trying to find in studying? The very first um, studies that we conducted in my research lab were designed to better understand the conditions and the context under which people may generate BS. And, and that was all geared to improving our BS detectors, because if we know when we're likely to be BSed, we can be more on guard and more likely to kind of kick in the basic critical thinking skills that need to occur in order to detect it. So what we find is that there are really, there's really only one specific instance in which people do not typically generate BS is that it would be rather difficult to get away with BS. For example, I personally, I'm not going to BS and auto mechanic. I, ju I just don't know enough about cars and engines and parts. Uh, auto mechanic is going to know right away that I don't know what I'm talking about, right? So, so if, it's, if it would be rather difficult to get away with, and I don't feel obligated to share an opinion anyway, why should I make myself look like a fool in talking about things that I don't know really know anything about? But in all other conditions, all other combinations, if you have like if it's easy to get away with, or if you feel obligated to share your opinion, or if both are in place, you feel obligated and you think it's going to be easy and it's going to be acceptable, you're going to get a social passive acceptance for your BS, then people will let it fly. So in many cases, the BS detector needs to be at full throttle. 
You know, they say in the advertising business that you, that you have to expose people to a message multiple times in order to get them to believe it and to take action. That also seems to be true with BS in the sense that, you know, if you hear something often enough, if people keep repeating the same BS often enough, it sort of moves over and makes its way into the truth column and people start to actually believe it. Yes. Well, Mike, we, we used to think that it, maybe you need to hear that false statement 20, 40, 50 times before you start to believe that it's true, even when you, when you know better. But my own research lab and the lab of others, Lisa Fazio at Vanderbilt University has also found this, that it only takes one instance of hearing something that is false and to process it, to later believe that it is true. And what is typically going on here is that people often confuse something that sounds familiar. It, it feels mentally, it feels familiar. We confuse that for truth because typically what feels familiar is true. It, it only takes one instance, especially when you mix it in with other, other statements that are actually true. It only takes one time, only one exposure. We're talking about BS with a guy who actually studies BS, John Petricelli. He is a professor of psychology at Wake Forest University, and his book is called The Life-Saving Science of Detecting BS. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, Something you should know? I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So, John, have you done any research where you're a fly on the wall and you're just kind of trying to figure out what percentage of conversations is just total BS? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I get this question a lot. Well, from, from my experiments, about 40%, so the answer is about 40% of what people are typically willing to admit. I do think it's greater than that, but that's a huge chunk that people are readily willing to admit. That It's not the same amount that they are willing to admit for lying. Most people will say, well, I lie a little bit, but rarely do people say, oh, yes, I lie 40% of the time. So 40% is a huge chunk. Well, but... but much of conversation isn't evidence-based. It's, you know, how are you and how's Bobby? Oh, Bobby's sick. I think he has the flu. Well, okay. So that's BS because you don't know if Bobby has the flu. Is that what you're talking about? Well, no, no, no. So if you are, are qualifying the assertion or the claim in some way to say, well, I'm speculating, or I don't know for sure, or I heard, but I haven't actually talked with Bobby. You know, you are expressing, you're giving the cues that, okay, I do actually have some interest and motivation in communicating truth, genuine evidence, or established knowledge. You had mentioned the situation where you're not going to try to BS a car mechanic because you don't have the knowledge that he has, but because he has the knowledge that you don't have, He's, mm -hmm. he, he could very easily BS you. And so how do you prevent that if possible? How do you, or at least yeah. how do you detect it? 
Yes, the, the very, very best way, I'll just get to the skinny on this, and that is to ask questions. That is the number one reason that people fail to detect BS is they fail to ask questions. The very first question that you should ask when you suspect or you're in a situation where you might be exposed to BS or even lies for that matter is to ask what, what exactly is the claim or the the assertion? If you ask for clarification by asking what, most often BSers will already, they'll start to clean up the assertion a bit. They'll take a couple of backpedaled steps. And we know this, that clarification is a major antidote to BS. And so you'll already be exposing yourself to less BS in most cases by just acting maybe a bit dumb, a little bit confused and say, well, I hear you saying X. Is what you are saying X or are you saying, you know, uh, what does this look like? And then the second question we should ask is how how is it that you know that X is true? And then if you can get through how, because most often people do not give you much evidence, which you will get more evidence. If there is readily available evidence that they're aware of, you'll get more evidence than explanation if you ask how. But if you get through that and you can ask then, well, have you considered why? You know, I hear you saying X, have you considered why? Have you worked that out? And all three of these questions, what they're designed to do is they are designed to diagnose the potential BSers, you know, interest in truth, genuine evidence, and established knowledge. And then when you, if, you, if they can answer those questions, then you can make a, a more well-informed decision as to whether or not you're buying the claim or the assertion that that is that they're making. It does seem that we can BS ourselves. You know, we'll, we'll say things out loud to other people, but really we're just saying them out loud to kind of test the waters and see, see how it flies. And in a, in a way, we're, we're kind of BSing ourselves. And then if other people buy it, then maybe we'll buy it. Yeah, and in addition to interpersonal BS, probably the most potent BSer um, to have an effect on our own opinions and attitudes about issues of the world and things that we think about ourselves is ourselves. So, so when we are not asking our own selves, to what extent is this claim or this assertion built on evidence or established knowledge? It's very easy to BS oneself. So absolutely, Mike, I mean, it has, um, you know, looking in the mirror, you'll see probably the most frequent BSer that you're ever going to meet. Well, it also seems, and you alluded to it earlier, that we're more likely to fall for a BS that confirms what we believe, even if it may not be true. I mean, you watch cable news, depending on your politics, whatever flavor of cable news you like, somebody will tell you something and there's your evidence. The guy just said that. So, boom, Uh (laughs) I was right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and what we do know from our studies in the lab too, is that if I give you a statement, we've done two studies where one, one was, we just gave you what we call pseudo profound statements that are really nonsense statements that don't really have any meaning, but they, they kind of sound profound. They have profound sounding words in them. Like what? And so if we say like hidden meaning transforms unparalleled abstract beauty, right? And if you happen to have conservative values or political orientation. And and that statement is coming from uh, Newt Gingrich or Paul Ryan, as opposed to Barack Obama or Nancy Pelosi, Bill Clinton, that's regarded as pretty good stuff. All right. But if, if, if it's coming from, uh, if, if the speaker's own political orientation misaligns with your, with your own, people are then likely to ask, well, what kind of, how, what evidence is there for that? Well, that this sounds like BS. So again, if the political orientation or the general attitudes that the speaker has align with our own, it's very difficult to, to, to detect BS. And we're very, and even if we do detect it, we're less likely to say it. But we done another study where we looked at, well, let's take a look at meaningful statements that actually do make sense. Let's look at statements about innovation. And they were sort of uh, heady, um, sort of ambiguous statements about 
um, the the future of innovation and business and technology and science. And again, we found the same thing that if the speakers political orientation aligned with your own, no matter what it was that they said, that was good stuff. But if it misaligned with your own uh, orientation, it, it was, it was trash, right? It didn't, it didn't make any sense. And it was, it was judged as less profound. Generally speaking, if you've studied this, if you're talking with someone, you know, all things being equal, you have no reason to believe that you're being BSed here, but something tells you all of a sudden, little alarm goes off that this is BS. What this guy's saying is BS. Is that reliable? Well, to, I would say to, to the extent you're talking about the, the conclusion that it is BS, is that reliable? Yeah, like if, if, if you're not expecting BS, but all of a sudden you're starting to sense what you think it is BS, is it likely, be, if it quacks like a duck and walks like a duck, is it likely the duck? Yeah, and I have sort of a mixed opinion about this, and that is that, I mean, it certainly is, it's, it's good to have an open mind. But at the same time, you don't want to be so open-minded that your brain falls out, right? So I would say that to the extent that you have asked follow-up questions and as many follow-up questions as you can, um, then you you can start to uncover any inconsistencies if they exist. But if you ask follow-up questions and you are now you're still convinced that all right this this doesn't make sense and and this isn't very well thought out it's not tied very well to truth genuine evidence or established knowledge then i think the judgment that it's bs and the treatment of it of the information as false until otherwise proven um, otherwise you know is a safe bet to take i guess what i meant was more before you start to ask the questions that you're your detector goes off and you think, now I need to ask some questions because this sounds like BS. Because you're not going to ask those kinds of questions for everything someone says. You, you, the conversation oh, will never get anywhere. So I'm, I'm, it was more about just like, just kind of detecting it, in, it without asking questions and that maybe then you do start to ask questions. Yeah, and that's, that's not something that, that the research currently answers. My guess is that people... Uh, feel that they're better at doing that than they actually are. But we don't have any data that directly speak to how accurate people actually are yet. Well, that's interesting because I think my BS detector is pretty good that I can spot it when I hear it. And But, but, but what you're saying is uh, probably not as good as I think. Again, especially with BS, some, sometimes the information is true and we are much, much more likely to count the hits um, in our BS detection. We can say, oh, yeah, I remember I, I called it out, right? <laughs> you know, we, we remember the hits, but we were not only um, unaware of a lot of the misses, but we're not as likely to count them, <laughs> right? So right. Um, there's probably many, many more instances in which we have fallen for BS and just never knew it, um, and that's it's why it was never counted. So. So the scoreboard, too, would be a very difficult yeah. kind of thing to, to, to track. You know, I wonder why it's bull excrement. Well, well some people say horse, but, but what, is it about, <laughs> what is it about bull excrement that makes it so appropriate? Yeah, we really don't know. Yeah, what, why did they pick that animal? Who knows? When, yeah. You know, why not uh, lizard S or, right. or rat or rat S, you know. Well, that's probably not part of your research, but the part of your research that we've been talking about is pretty interesting. John Petricelli has been my guest. He's a professor of psychology at Wake Forest University, and the name of his book is The Life-Saving Science of Detecting BS, and you'll find a link to that book in the show notes. Thank you, John. Thanks for being here. All right, Michael. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. I don't know if you share this opinion with me, but it certainly seems to me that people today are quick to disagree and argue. We have become very contentious. Not only do people disagree, they get mad about it, and they argue and fight rather than try to resolve the disagreement, much more so than in the past. 
Yet, when you stop and think about it, resolving a disagreement is far better than fighting about it. So I want you to listen to Bill Eddy. He is a mediator who has been helping people resolve conflicts for a long time. And, and I swear, I don't think you could rile him up or get him mad no matter how hard you try. He's written a book called Calming Upset People with Ear. Ear being an acronym for Empathy, Attention, and Respect. Hi, Bill. So give me the quick overview of this ear technique, the empathy, attention, and respect. What What is it? Yeah, it's a technique that I developed about 15 years ago working with clients as a lawyer and as a mediator. And what I found was often people, of course, are upset and dealing with conflict and all of that and giving them an ear statement, something that shows empathy or attention or respect seemed to calm people down. So I've been teaching professionals this for 15 years, but now with kind of the negative times we're in and polarization and all that, I thought it's time to teach everybody. And the result of it is it does what exactly? What it does is it calms down people's emotions. So let's say they're angry at you, they're pointing a finger at you, saying it's all your fault. And instead of arguing back saying, no, it's not all my fault, it's all your fault, is instead to say, wow, I can see you're worried about how this is going to turn out, or I know you've been having a hard day, or I respect the work that you've been doing. Or I'll pay attention. Tell me more. I want to understand. And the effect is that people, 90% of the time, people really do calm down. And then you can solve problems instead of just having an argument. Which probably works a lot better than telling people, calm down. Right. Telling people calm down really bothers them. Don't tell me to calm down. You calm down. <laughs> so it has the opposite effect. But being calm and making a calm ear statement does help people calm down probably 90% of the time. So teach me how to do it. So let's say someone's saying, you know, behind on a project uh, that you're working with and, and suddenly they say, Mike, it's all your fault. So what you would do is tell yourself, it's not about me. I don't have to get all that excited about this. It's just someone that needs an ear statement. So you can calm yourself down and then you go, well, let me think. Am I going to give them empathy or attention or respect? So let's say you're going to give them empathy. And you say, well, Joe, or whoever it is, I can see you're worried about us getting this done on time. Let's look at what we can do. So it's just a sentence. You know, I see that you're worried. Uh, because underneath anger is usually another emotion like being worried, afraid, hurt, uh, frustrated. And that's a big one. I, I always have that ready. People say something and I say, wow, I can see you're frustrated. Let's look at what we can do. So that way you calm yourself and then you give your ear statement. Could just be empathy, could be time, attention. You might say, well, Joe, you know, tell me, tell me what's happening. This really seems to be stressing you. Um, or respect, Joe, I really appreciate the work you've been doing on this. I think we're going to be able to, to get it done and it's going to be a good, a good result. So how do you decide which of those three types of statements to give or, or it doesn't matter? It doesn't really matter. They all seem to work. So whichever one is the easiest. You wonder why we don't do this naturally since, you know, when you talk about it in a calm, you know, disinterested way here, like we're not in the middle of an argument, it makes a lot of sense. It's just that in the moment, it's very hard to do. Yes. And that's why it does take practice. And that's why up to now we've been teaching it to professionals because they, they kind of have to be the grown up in the room. So they're the ones that need to stay calm even when a client is angry with them. In a way, it's like a parent staying calm while a child's having a temper tantrum. It's, it's something that, that we're not always used to. But today, we're seeing more upset people, more angry people, seeing more conflict and polarization. 
And so the automatic response is to get angry back. So we're really needing to learn this because there's more conflict in our faces today than, say, you know, 20 or 50 years ago. So give me an example and a situation of people in a conflict and how this would work. Well, first I'll give you one, and I won't give you the exact words, but this was a real consultation case that I had. A woman in her job, uh, her boss left, and her new boss, she was just a year from retirement, and her new boss picked on her, decided to make her the target of flame. And apparently her new boss had a high-conflict personality, so she always had to blame somebody for everything. So the person, we call her Lori, says, what do I do? I try to kind of hide from my boss when I come into the office and, and go quickly to my room. And I said, I want to suggest you do the opposite. You check in with your boss when you come in in the morning. Pop your head in, in her office and say, hi, how's your weekend? Or, hey, that program on Friday was really helpful. I really appreciate that. That's a form of respect. Anyway, so each morning she'd give her an ear statement, one or the other, empathy, attention, or respect. And a month later she said, guess what, Bill? I'm now her favorite. <laughs> and she's picking now on somebody else, so I gave him your book. So why does that work? What is going on? when you give an ear statement, an uh, empathy, attention, or respect statement to somebody, what happens to the, the dynamic between the two people that causes the conflict to subside? Well, what happens is emotions are contagious. And so angry emotions are contagious. Someone's angry with you, your body wants to get angry back and fight or flee. And so what this does is it takes the anger and you over, override your own angry response. And instead you put out an ear statement, empathy, attention, and respect. That's a positive emotional response. And the other person, your positive emotions are also contagious. And so the other person feels that coming at them and that automatically influences their brain to be calm. And so what you're doing is either person, you have to shift yourself. That's the key. So when you've got anger coming in and your body wants to have anger going out, you override that, which you can do. Tell yourself, it's not about me. I'm just going to give an ear statement. And then you give your ear statement that's calm. It's really hard for someone to be angry with a calm person if the person's engaged and seems to have empathy, attention, and respect. Uh, a calm person who's just kind of cold and calm will irritate the other person even more, and that'll escalate them. But this is a positive emotion that really does calm people if you can do it. It takes practice, but it can be done. It often seems, as I think about conflicts I've been in with people, that, that part of why it gets so contentious is there's this desire to teach somebody a lesson, to get at them, to get, to get them, not to solve the problem, but to teach them a lesson because they're wrong and I'm right. Yes. And that's, you know, part of human nature built into us is the win-lose construct. So we want to win, we don't want to lose. But the idea with ear statements is you turn it into a win-win construct. So you're right, we're, we're all built to defend and protect ourselves. But the, the smart thing about humans is we can figure out when it's a dangerous situation and when it's not so that we can shift gears into problem solving. So this is kind of like your gear shift into, you know, the other person's going in reverse and you can shift yourself into going forward and that influences the other person. So you're right. It's, there's an automatic fight response, but you can overrule that. And there's so many times, let's say you're watching TV or a movie and somebody's yelling and you don't get 
upset about that at all because you know it's not about you. Well, it's thinking the same way with someone else who's upset. It's not really about you. It's about them losing control of their own emotions. And you can control yours and calm the other person because your positive emotions are contagious. So as I'm sitting here listening to you talk, I have to ask, do you ever get upset? You seem like the kind of guy that like never gets upset. <laughs> How could you say such a thing? <laughs> um, I'm generally calm by nature. And I think that's why I was attracted to doing mediation, for example. So two people can be angry in front of me. And what's going on in my mind is, let's see, I wonder how this is going to turn out. I wonder where the solution is instead of getting angry. And I've had people, two people in a mediation, both turn at me and say, Bill, you're not helping. And I'm like, oh, okay, then what do you recommend we do next instead of defending myself? Because I'm used to people being angry at me and it's not about me. That's made it easier, I guess, because I, I deal, I'm in business dealing with other people's arguments. So I'm really used to staying calm and not taking it personally. Um, I think, you know, people ask me about this sometimes, and I may have been born calm, um, so it's more natural for me. But people find that they can learn this, and I do get upset sometimes. I mean, I, I was uh, practicing as a family lawyer for 15 years, and I'll tell you, I had some difficult situations where I just wanted to wring the neck of the other lawyer uh, because I disagreed so much uh, with some of what they were doing. But it's really, it's all about practice, I think. Well, and when you think about it, I mean, what good does it do to, you know, want to wring the neck of the other lawyer or, or you know, get upset with the other person? It doesn't, it doesn't help you. It doesn't help them. It doesn't help the problem. It doesn't do anything other than just inflame the situation. And yet somehow the, it scratches an itch in the moment that really seems to need scratching. Yeah, or it feels like it does. And, and that's the thing. And I think, you know, parents of teenagers um, go through this all the time. Teenagers are just furious. What do you mean I can't go to that party um, because it's going to be so late or there's no parents there or whatever? And it's the end of the world. And the parents like, yeah, I know, Johnny. I know it's frustrating, but, you know, this, I, I might be saving your life by setting this limit on you. Well, mom, you're just, you know, you're the worst person in the world. I hate your guts. And it's like, yeah, Johnny, I understand you feel that way. Um, and you can't talk to me that way, though. And we got to work on this. And so you really, you know, it's, it's a practice, but it's something people do have the skill for. But also understanding we're built to defend and get angry and fight back but we're also built to override that depending on the circumstance. Well, what you just said about like, like a teenager who says, you know, mom, I hate your guts. And you said, well, you know, we really have to work on that. And I can understand some people hearing that and go, no, 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 no. We're not going to work on that. I'm the parent. He's the child. And I'm going to, you know, I, I can't be too wishy-washy. I can't get pushed around like this. No, you don't talk to me that way. And, and you get upset about it. Yeah, well, it's it's really depends on the particular parent and particular child. So the way we're going to work on this might be I'm going to take your cell phone away for 24 hours. And so it really depends on the situation. But the idea is it helps if the parent has empathy for the child, even while they're setting limits. And I have an example actually in the book like that. It's a father and a daughter, and that can always be... Uh, a pretty volatile relationship with a, a teenage girl and her father. And it's easy to get into that, wait, I'm the boss here and you just have to do what I say. I have to tell you, as, as a counselor, I've worked with a lot of parents and teenagers, including teenagers that then ran away. So the idea is by giving the teenagers some empathy, attention, and respect and setting limits, 
um, it, it calms the situation and teaches the lesson. And the teenager, in many cases, is more likely to accept the limit, even though they don't like it. Well, one of the phrases often in parent-child conversations, and, and also at work between a boss and an employee, is because I said so. Yeah, and that really depends on the situation. You may be able to go, oh, okay, fine. Or, all right, I quit then. <laughs> right. So it depends so much on the relationship. But in general, you can set limits with ear statements. And we're, we're, telling, we're teaching because we teach this to managers and human resource uh, professionals. And with some people in the workplace today, it can be pretty dangerous if you don't find a way to calm them. Uh, you know, people that are fired and they leave the office and they come back ready to hurt people. Um, so we have to be, in general, I think, as a society, I think we all need to be responsible for calming things more nowadays because it's things are getting so cranked up emotionally with polarization and COVID and, and other disputes we all need to start practicing calming things. And that's why I think this ear statement technique is the kind of thing that anybody can learn and it's simple. And the more people that do it, the calmer world will have. Well, what would you say if you were working for me and we were getting into it and I wanted you to do something and you didn't want to do it and I said, no, you're going to do it because I said so, what would you say? Well, I would say, hey, boss, you know, can you, I, I want to understand this a little bit more. Can you explain your reasoning behind this? Because then it'll be easier for me to accept it. Tell me more. That's what I would say. Yeah, I've worked for bosses who have no interest in telling you more. It's because I said yeah. so. And that's the end of the story and get out of my office. And the reality is that like three quarters of managers are never trained in being a manager. But a good manager will have some empathy and respect for employees. And for example, I've done trainings with people in the high tech world where there's uh, really smart people who are really rude and they don't wanna lose them, but they also can't have them around uh, offending everybody and having people quit on them. So teaching them a little bit of skills in how to communicate more respectfully can make the difference and has made the difference because managers like that eventually lose their jobs as well. When people try this and it doesn't go well, what typically goes wrong? Well, some people are high-conflict people, and we actually designed this for high-conflict people. They're the ones that are more intensely upset, and they may need more than one ear statement. So I suggest you try a couple ear statements. But if they are so invested in their anger, uh, in their blame, that even a couple ear statements makes no difference, it's probably more of a personality problem for them. So when you're saying what goes wrong, it's probably because they have a personality that's stuck in conflict and high conflict where they, they're used to just increasing the conflict until they win and you lose. And that's not very, very helpful in the modern world where we're looking for win-win solutions. So what goes wrong is that that other person really can't shift themselves. And so if you're the person that's given a couple ear statements at that point, move on to problem solving and say, let's look at our options or say, okay, um, I'm going to move on now. Have a good day. Yeah, I wish I could be more like you. <laughs> it, I've had 15 years of practice, so it's a little bit easier. But, but people do learn this and find that they can pull it off sometimes. Well, I would imagine it just makes your life so much easier because you don't spend the same amount of time that other people spend getting all worked up and upset and pissed off and it, it just seems to be water off a duck's back to you. Yeah, you're absolutely right that it really saves time because um, I don't have all these outstanding conflicts with people. And I can't think of someone who I've taught this method to 
that said that it's made their life worse. They've, I've had people say it doesn't always work, and I agree with that. Um, but generally, they say, I did it and it worked yesterday. I can't believe it. I wish I knew this a week ago when I was talking to my mother-in-law or something like that. Um, so again, it's, it's practice, but it is possible. You know, I, I don't know if you watch the show, but you kind of remind me of Ted Lasso. You know, you don't get stuck in that angry, retaliatory, fight it out with people. You're looking to solve the problem, which ultimately is the goal anyway. So why bother with all the negative and all of the anger? You just, you just solve the problem. And really, that's, that's the goal. That's the point. Bill Eddy has been my guest. He's a mediator and an attorney and author of a book called Calming Upset People with Ear, Ear being an acronym for Empathy, Attention, and Respect. And you'll find a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks, Bill. Well, thank you for so much. I appreciate you listening. Everyone knows that having good friends means a lot. Yet today, people have fewer good friends than ever. Partly because we're busy, also because people move a lot, we've been locked down for a while, and people live much more private lives, it seems, than, say, our parents or grandparents. I mean, how many of us know who our neighbors are, let alone have them over for dinner? According to psychologist Will Miller, all of this is part of the reason we have high levels of mood disorders, depression, anxiety, and loneliness. So here's a test to determine how many good friends you have. Ask yourself, how many friends do you have who have refrigerator rights? Meaning, they're friends who can walk into your house, go to the refrigerator, grab something to eat or drink without having to ask you permission. Those are friends with refrigerator rights, and those are the kind of friends you want. And that is something you should know. Remember, the best way to support this podcast is really to help us grow the audience, which is very easy to do. Just just one person, just tell one person about this podcast and suggest that they give it a listen. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.